Does the Bible contain errors? Many critics claim the Bible cannot be the Word of God because it contains factual errors, contradictions, and is at odds with science. But is this the case? Today on Evidence and Answers, you'll hear Dr. Norman Geisler, one of the foremost defenders of the Christian faith, answer these questions. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. This is a program that presents the truth of Jesus Christ and answers the sometimes difficult questions that all of us ask about God. Today, Pat presents Dr. Norman Geisler before a live audience at a recent conference in Hawaii, where Dr. Geisler argued that the scriptures do not contain errors as the critics contend. In the second of this two-part series, Dr. Geisler defends the doctrine of inerrancy. And we want to remind you that there are a multitude of resources available online at evidenceandanswers.org. There you'll find everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including interviews and teaching from Dr. Norman Geisler. That's evidence and answers.org. Go there today. Now, Norman Geisler answers the question, does the Bible contain errors? You know what scientists do when they come upon something that they can't explain? They say, I don't know how to explain it, but I'm going to keep studying it until I figure it out. You know what I've done for the last 58 years I've been studying the Bible? When I come upon a difficulty I don't understand, I don't throw the Bible out any more than a scientist throws nature out. I keep studying you know what I discovered? The more I study, the more I learn how the Bible doesn't err, but I do. There are many difficulties in the Bible, and there are many difficulties in science we're not going to throw out either, Revelation. What do we both assume? Scientists assume that in spite of the difficulties, there must be some explanation. They assume that it's explainable. They don't know how life lives on thermal vents in the depths of the sea. It's too hot, but there's life there. They once didn't know how the bumblebee could fly. What do they do? They kept studying until they found the power pack on the bumblebee that makes the wings go at tremendous speed to overcome the aerodynamic difficulty of small wings in a large body. What do we do when we come upon difficulties in the Bible? We assume there's an explanation even though I don't yet know what it is. When you take that attitude in science, what happens? You explain more and more things because you don't give up research and you keep studying and keep trying until you can find out how life grows on thermal vents. And when they discover that, just think what that will do for firefighters having that kind of material that can protect us from flames when we go and burning buildings to save people. Think of what it'll do for space travel. And think of what it'll do for a Christian when he realizes that the many difficulties in the Bible have explanations, and the more he studies, the more explanations he gets. So when I started 50 years ago, I had this many difficulties I couldn't explain in the Bible. And over the years, the amount of difficulties have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, what is it reasonable to believe? That the things I can't now explain will somehow, someday be explained just as it's true in science. Continue research. If you threw out the Bible every time you came upon a problem, what would you learn? How much research would you do? If you threw out nature every time you came on a difficulty, what progress would there be in science? St. Augustine said it best. He said, if we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in Scripture, notice the word apparent, it is not allowable to say, the author of this book is mistaken. Write that one off. God doesn't make mistakes. You've got three alternatives. One, The manuscript is faulty, the translation is wrong, or you have not understood. And this is the attitude that every Christian must take toward the Word of God. God can't err. And if I find something in the Bible that looks like an error, either we've got a bad manuscript, and there are 5,700 New Testament manuscripts and 10,000 Old Testament manuscripts, 
Either the translation is based on a bad manuscript or it's a bad translation. Get yourself a better Bible, uh, a better translation, or you don't understand. But the one thing you must never say is that God Almighty, the creator of this universe, made a mistake. It's the critics who have made the errors. Do you know that one time the critics said Moses couldn't write the first five books of the Bible because there was no writing in Moses' day, 1500 B.C.? Do you know now that writing goes back to at least 3500 B.C., 2,000 years before Moses? Who was wrong, the Bible or the critics? Do you know at one time the critics said there were no Hittites? The Hittites are mentioned only in the Bible. We never heard of them anywhere else. You know what? We got the whole Hittite library now in Turkey. The critics were wrong. The Bible was right. Error number one, presuming the Bible guilty until proven innocent. I would not want a Bible critic on my jury. What if we approach road signs by they must be wrong until we can prove they're right? Oh, how about traffic signs, traffic signals? What if we assume that they weren't right until proven so? How about labels on food? You'd have to open every can in the store before you knew what was in it. What about numbers on currency? Well, they must have meant 200 on this bill, not 20. You know, try that. Well, disaster would result. If you don't presume things correct, if you don't presume that that exit sign back there means exit, and that door is not just painted there, and fire breaks out and you go crashing into a solid wall there, you've got to presume that things are telling you the truth until they're proven the opposite. That's how life works. Error number two of the critics, confusing our fallible interpretation with God's infallible revelation. You see, the Bible is infallible, but my interpretations aren't. Genesis chapter 6 talks about sons of God marrying the daughters of men. There are four interpretations of that. They were fallen angels. They were great men of old. Uh, these were people who were the line of Seth. Uh, these were demon-possessed people. There are four interpretations. Now, over the last 50 years, I have held all four interpretations at one time or another. I had to be wrong three times. I might be wrong right now. But we're not going to blame the Bible and say the Bible is fallible because Geisler was wrong three times in his interpretation of the infallible word. No, the Bible is infallible, but I'm not. See, God has two revelations. His general revelation in nature, which I've been enjoying for the last 10 days here on the islands, because we uh, surveyed all four islands while we were here, spent two days in every island, and it's a beautiful, beautiful place. God's general revelation shines out everywhere. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. There's no conflict between God's revelation in nature and his revelation in Scripture. There's no conflict between the facts of the Bible and the facts of science. Where's the conflict? It's between the views of theologians about Scripture and the views of scientists about nature. That's where the conflict is. Some theologians look at the world, and some scientists look at the word, and they come up with different ideas. The conflict is on the level of our interpretation not on the level of God's inspiration. Error number three of the critics, assuming that the unexplained is not explainable. Science once had no explanation for meteors, eclipses, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, or how the bumblebee could fly. All of these are now explained. More will be explained in the future. The same is true of the Bible. We once had no explanation for the Hittites, no explanation for writing in Moses' time, no explanation for... Uh, the flood, and no explanation for the exodus from Egypt, and no explanation for many things in the Bible, all of which now has been shown to be true by archaeology. The rest of the things, we'll get more information later. Error number four of the critics. Assuming that a partial report is a false report. 
Example, the inscription on the cross. Matthew said that the inscription over Jesus read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark said, the king of the Jews. Luke said, uh, this is the king of the Jews. And John said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, each one gave a partial report, but no one gave a false report. Each one gave only part of the truth. If you put them all together, you have the whole truth. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Just because the Bible gives partial reports doesn't mean it's false. As a matter of fact, almost no report ever given by anyone gave all the truth. You don't have time enough to give all the truth about any topic in this life. So almost every report is a partial report. Therefore, nothing would be true if a partial report couldn't be true. Note, each has the essential part in it, the king of the Jews, and all together gives the whole statement. Error number five of the critics, assuming that divergent accounts are false ones. Example number one, Matthew says there was one angel at the tomb after the resurrection. John says there were two angels there. Now that looks like a contradiction, doesn't it? But there's an infallible mathematical rule that explains it. Wherever there's two, there's always one. The critic doesn't know too much about the Bible. He knows too little. And anyone who says there are errors in the Bible knows too little about the situation. If he got all of the rest of the facts, which we may or may not get in our lifetime, in our limited knowledge, he would know that there is no contradiction there. Example two, Judas hanged himself, Matthew 27, 5. Acts 1, 18. Judas fell headlong, burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gushed out. Not too good right after supper, but there it is. And critics look at that and they say, see, there's a contradiction in the Bible. No, that's not a contradiction in the Bible. The resolution is simple. Sometime after hanging himself, his body was discovered. In that culture, you can't touch a dead body. They cut the rope. The body fell on sharp rocks and it burst open. Easy to understand if you understand the context. The Bible doesn't err. The critics do. Error number six of the critics. Forgetting that the Bible uses non-technical everyday language. You know what? The Bible is written in everyday language to everyday people so that everyone can understand it. In fact, the whole gospel is put in four-letter words called monosyllables. The monosyllabic gospel. He that hath the Son of God hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. First John 5. The critics forget that the Bible is an everyday book for everyday people. It was written for the common man in common language. It uses everyday observational language. It's not unscientific, it's pre-scientific. It was before science assumed some kind of precision that was necessary to put a rocket on the moon. It's not unscientific, it's pre-scientific. Illustration. Joshua chapter 10 speaks of the sun standing still. Joshua chapter 1 speaks of the sun rising. Now I ask you this question. Which of those is more unscientific to say, the sun stood still or the sun rose? Both of them, from the technical standpoint of an observer in outer space of the universe, are technically imprecise. But both of them, from the standpoint of an observer on the surface of the earth, observing what happened, are actually true. In fact, there's a scientist, he's called a meteorologist. You probably hear his report twice a day. And what does he say? Sunrise this morning, sunset tonight. Even modern scientists talk that way. And I've never heard a husband say to his wife, looking at a blazing sun in the western sky, dear, look at the beautiful earth rotation. We just don't talk that way. Why? Because from an observer's point of view, the sun sets. And from an observer's point of view, the sun stood still in the sky for an extra day. How do I know? The Bible says so. 
and Joshua was able to complete the battle. How it happened, the Bible doesn't tell us. Did God refract it? Did he counteract the laws of gravity and slow up the earth on its axis? We don't know. But the God who made the universe would have no problem whatsoever. Error number seven of the critics, assuming round numbers are false. The Bible presents pi, which is 3.14159265, and so on. Not as that, but in 2 Chronicles 4.2, it presents pi as three. It says the little sea out in front of Solomon's temple was 10 cubits across and 30 cubits around. You say, ah, there's a scientific error in the Bible. The Bible didn't know that pi was 3.14. But even scientists round off pi to a limited number of points. I don't know any scientist who ever used pi perfectly because pi never comes out even. It just keeps on going forever. In the ancient world, a cubit was this, from your elbow to your finger. A span was this. Well, it just depends whose hand they're using, you know. This is how they measured the ancient world. 3.1 rounds off to what? 3. 3.49 rounds off to what? 3. The Bible uses round numbers. Error number 8 of the critics, presuming that the Bible approves all it records. There are many things the Bible records, but it doesn't approve. The Bible records Satan's lies, but doesn't say they're true. The Bible is an absolutely true record of that lie. The Bible records David's adultery. It's an absolutely true record of that sin. It's not approving the sin, it's recording it. Error number nine of the critics. This is a very common one, taking figures of speech literally. Now, we believe that the literal interpretation of the Bible is the correct one. And so we believe that the Bi everything in the Bible is literally true. We do not believe that everything in the Bible is true literally. Now let me repeat that. We believe everything in the Bible is literally true. We do not believe everything in the Bible is true literally. For example, when Jesus said, I'm the vine, you don't look for leaves coming out of his ear. These are figures of speech. And when Jesus picked up bread from the table at the Last Supper, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body. Is there anyone there who didn't know the difference between his body and the piece of bread in his hand? There are figures of speech. For example, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, stars don't sing. That's poetical language. In fact, it's talking about angels. There are parables in the Bible. There was a city, had a judge who did not fear God, neither regarded man, and he said, because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she will worry me. Jesus told a parable about a nagging woman who nagged the judge so much that he threw in the towel, and he said, be persistent in prayer. Now, in the parable, God is depicted as an unjust judge. You can't make a parable walk on all four. What it's saying is this. If an unjust judge will throw in the towel to a nagging woman, how much more a just God will respond to your persistent prayer request. It's a parable, not to be taken literally. There are metaphors in the Bible, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity sets on fire the course of nature. Not really, but it's a powerful picture, isn't it? There are similes in the Bible. The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed. It's not a grain of mustard seed, but it's like one. There are hyperboles in the Bible. This bothers some people. There are exaggerations in the Bible. It's a perfectly legitimate form of speech. There are also many other things Jesus did. If they should be written to everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. He only ministered for three and a half years. It wouldn't take the whole world to write all of that down. It's a hyperbole. There are satires in the Bible. You blind guides who strain out a net and swallow a camel, that's one of Jesus' jokes. Just look at that. Draw that picture and you'll see how funny it is. Somebody's straining out a little tiny net and swallowing a big camel. That's a satire. They're figures of speech. 
O God, therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. God doesn't have wings. God doesn't have feathers. God is spirit, John 4, 24. There are anthropomorphisms. Anthropos is the word for man, morphos the word for form. Putting God in human form so we can understand it. It says God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them and he did it not. But God doesn't repent. The strength of Israel will not lie nor repent for he's not a man that he should repent. Now either the Bible is flatly contradictory there because one verse says he repented and the other verse says he doesn't repent or this is an anthropomorphism which says it appears as though God repents when we repent. Let me illustrate. I'm on my bicycle and I'm pumping against the wind and I say the wind is against me. And I turn around and go this way and I say the wind is for me. Did the wind change or did I change? We change with respect to God. God does not change with respect to us. I, the Lord, change not, Malachi 3.6. There is no shadow of turning with him, James 1.17. Error number 10 of the critics, forgetting that the only, only the original text, not every copy of Scripture, is without error. We don't have the original text of the Bible. We just have copies. The originals have been destroyed. Why? Well, maybe for the same reason that God buried Moses. If they found him, they'd be worshiping it. If we had the original text, people would be worshiping it. Or maybe, and I think probably more likely, that God didn't allow the original text to be in any person's hand because it could be corrupted. What if one group of Christendom had the original text and nobody else had access to it and they could distort it and change it? But if God had 5,700 manuscripts, which he has of the New Testament, and they're spread all over the world, nobody can change all of them and we can reconstruct the original from it. I think that's more likely. But we must remember this, that there are errors in the copies. In fact, I don't want to disillusion you, but there are errors in the King James Version. It was not let down from heaven on a string uh, and good enough for Paul and good enough for us. There are actual errors. I'll give you some of them in the King James translation of the Bible. Here's one. Check it out in your King James. Ahaziah was 42 years old in 2 Chronicles 22 too, when he began to reign. In 2 Kings 8, 26, he was 22 years old. Same king, same grandfather, same father, same son, same time period, not two different people. One of those is wrong. In fact, if he were 42, he'd be older than his dad, which is hard to do. So it's an error in the copy. Solomon had 40,000 stalls in 1 Kings 4, and in 2 Chronicles 9, it said he had 4,000 stalls. These errors are found in copies, not in originals. No one ever found an original manuscript of the Bible with an error in it. And we have thousands of manuscripts of the Bible, too. They're rare. These are, they're not hundreds and thousands of these in the Bible, they're rare. Three, they affect no doctrine of Scripture. There is no doctrine that is brought in question by any one of these copyist errors. They're mostly in numbers. We usually know which one is correct. For example, we know that Ahaziah was 22 years old, because you can't be older than your dad. We know that it was 4,000 horses, not 40,000, because if you compare the number of horses and stalls he had, uh, we can tell from the context it was 4,000. The punchline is this. Even with mistakes, 100% of the message comes through. Even though the originals have no mistakes, the copies do have mistakes, and even with the mistakes, 100% of the message comes through. Error number 11 of the critics, failing to understand the context of a passage. They say in real estate there are three rules in buying a house, location, location, and location. And there are three rules in interpreting the scripture. Context, context, context. 
What is the immediate context? What is the context in this whole book? What is the context in the whole Bible? There's an old adage that goes, a text out of context is a pretext. Other examples. The Bible says the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, but science says the orchid seed is. So the Bible must be wrong. So said the critics. However, the mustard seed was the smallest, look at the context, which a man took, what man? A first century peasant farmer took and sowed in his field. In the first century, the mustard seed was the smallest seed that the farmer sowed in his field. It was literally the smallest seed. The orchid seed is smaller of all seeds in the world, but it wasn't talking about all seeds in the world. It's talking about the one that a Jewish farmer in the first century sowed in his field. The Bible says, Paul's companions heard the voice. When the light shone from heaven and Jesus spoke to Paul, it says his companions heard the voice. When he repeats the story in Acts 22, it says Paul's companions did not hear the voice. Now, if you've ever had Mormons knock on your door, they have in their pocket somewhere a little book called The Missionary Pal. And this Missionary Pal has a whole bunch of these alleged contradictions in to show you that the Bible can't be trusted. This is one they have in The Missionary Pal. And you need to know how to answer it. How can you answer that when in one passage it says Paul's companions heard the voice and the other passage they did not hear? Context. They heard the sound but did not hear, understand the meaning. How many times have I uh, said to my son David, David, did you hear me? Take out the garbage. Well, he heard me, but he didn't hear me. <laughs> we use the word hear the same way. I heard it. Well, did you really hear it? Did you really understand it? Not necessarily. You can hear what I'm saying and not understand what I'm saying right now. In fact, there was a voice from heaven in John chapter 12, and a voice spoke saying Jesus was his son, and some who stood by said, sounds like thunder. Some said, sounds like an angel talking. Others said, it's the voice of God. Context determines the meaning. They heard the noise, but they didn't understand the words. Only Paul did. Now, no one has ever demonstrated an error in the Bible. But we have seen that there are many errors in the critics. They can't even add 39 and 27. The critics make many errors. For 800 more errors of the critics, we've written a book titled When Critics Ask. It just came out under a new title, The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. I spent 30 years researching this, actually 40 years researching it. I took 800 from Genesis to Revelation of the alleged contradictions in the Bible. I looked at them in their context. I studied them. And I concluded that of 800 atheist, agnostic, skeptic, critics, objections, that zero of them were valid. I conclude there are no errors in the Bible that any critic has ever demonstrated, and there are many errors in the critics. Mark Twain wasn't a Christian, but he said some pretty profound things, and here's one. It's not the part of the Bible I don't understand that troubles me the most. It's the part of the Bible I do understand that troubles me the most. You know, I used to be troubled about these things. I took the time to study 800 of them. But you know, they don't bother me. I used to be troubled about what did the seven thunders utter in the book of Revelation. The Bible says seal it up. Nobody knows. If somebody tells you he knows, he doesn't. I used to wonder what the seven thunders uttered. But you know now, what bothers me the most is what the thunderous voice on Mount Sinai uttered when it said, thou shalt not kill. And we just killed 4,000 babies today and yesterday and the day before, and have killed 40 million of them since January 22nd, 1973. That bothers me more than all the things I don't understand about the Bible. 
I used to be concerned who the rider on the white horse and the red horse is in the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Now I don't care if it's the Lone Ranger and Tonto. (laughs) Really, we should not criticize the Bible. We should let the Bible criticize us. This book was not written so that you could be a critic of it. It was written so it could be a critic of you. Listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And as a discerner, it's literally the word for critic, is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here's a book that can see right through me. It can see right through me. It can see every ounce of hypocrisy, every ounce of insincerity, every lack of integrity. It sees right through me. And when I confront myself with God's word, I am the one being criticized, not God. You and I have been given the word of God. Isaiah put it this way, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. Well, thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers today with Pat Zuckerman. And our prayer is that we answer the hard questions that all of us ask and that we equip you to know what you believe and why you believe it. And if you're a seeker or a skeptic, we hope we've challenged you with the various evidences which support the claims of Christ. There are a multitude of resources available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Interviews with leading scholars, past shows that you can download, and we deal with topics Topics from atheism to Zen Buddhism to Islam to the occult, the cults, agnosticism, and contemporary issues which faces today. And by the way, when you purchase our resources, you keep Pat Zuckerman speaking out all over the world. Help support a quality apologetics program for radio and podcast and Pat's speaking engagements on college campuses and churches all over the world. Evidenceandanswers.org. Go there today. Evidenceandanswers.org.